for scripture this morning. Again, Genesis 3, (laughs) verses 6 through 11. Hear God's word to us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also um, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, wil- in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The word of the Lord. Lord, we are like the man and the woman hiding ourselves um, from your presence. Um, And yet you, um, in the same way that you engaged them, you engaged us. You look for us. You ask after us. You come towards us even as we move away from you. And so I pray that this morning you would do that. You would move towards us no matter what or where we're at, where we're hiding or how we find ourselves in relationship to you this morning, whether um, apathetic or fearful or perhaps joyful. We know that you meet us where we're at and you call on us because you care and you love us. And so we pray you do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Man, or men and women, I use that universally, is a rational animal. This this is uh, an idea that uh, was uh, very prominent in the ancient Greek world, the idea that human beings are rational animals, that what sets us apart from the rest of animal life is our capacity for reasoning, our capacity to, to, uh, to think. Um, and this has been a very influential uh, way of thinking about what it means to be a human being within the Western intellectual tradition up into the present time. And it was a very influential way of of approaching uh, human nature uh, for early Christians, for early Christian, uh, what we call the early church fathers and the medieval tradition, um, very much under the influence of ancient Greek philosophy when they approached the image of God, uh, they would often talk about um, what the meaning of the image of God is, is that that we have reason, rationality. Um, Now, I think that's true even today. I think a lot of times when you ask people, you know, what is the image of God? You know, what's the content of it? You know, one of the answers that people give is, well, it's reason, right? Now, this isn't all wrong. I think actually there's, there's something very true to this. And when, uh, even though the ancient Greek philosophers and the early Christians, when they talked about reason, um, their understanding of reason was much uh, more comprehensive and integrated than, than ours. But the reality is, is that the way that this way of thinking has come down to us as modern people um, is that when we think about reason, we just think about what's in the head. And, and this, I think, has led us to have an overly intellectual, an overly, um, you know, heady approach to understanding the image of God, but, but also a lot of other things. 
And one of the things that it does, it, with all this emphasis on reason and rationality, is that we underestimate the important role that emotion plays. I, I would agree that to be human is to be a rational animal, but I would also add that it, to be human is to be an emotional animal. And that's what I want to talk about today. To be human is to be an emotional animal. Uh, emotion um, is as central, and in arguably even more central, to the way we navigate the world and what it means to be human in God's image, as reason is. And prior to the fall, reason and feeling, thinking and feeling, were not in opposition or in contradiction to one another. They were actually in perfect harmony and relationship. And so uh, to be created in God's image is to be a desiring creature, to be one that feels and, 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 and has emotion and experience to the world. And God, God created us this way, and it's a good thing, because we orient ourselves in the world through emotion, and we're drawn along in the world um, and navigate through desire and emotion. In the last 20 years, or maybe even more, um, there has been uh, a lot of research in psychology and um, in brain studies and social science about the central role that emotion plays um, for how people are able to navigate the world and understand themselves. Um, we know and we understand more now how emotion is really central to, to flourishing and well-being, and, and that even, even the category of intelligence, you know, we talk about this classic idea of IQ, um, intellectual quotient. More and more we talk about emotional intelligence as a real thing alongside. So we have EQ, emotional intelligence. And so attending to emotion, being able to describe emotion and knows how it fits with the rest of things, um, know, knowing how to navigate and regulate our emotions is something that we're, that psychologists and, and, and that have done a lot of work around. I mean, you could say, you know, we've had some of emotional breakthrough um, as a culture, which is a good thing. Uh, just as an illustration of, of how prominent this is, I was looking at my shelf of books where I keep, um, this topic, and let me just read you some of the, some of the, the titles that illustrate the point. So, uh, Emotional Intelligence, this is the name of a book, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ, Healing Through Dark Emotion, Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child, um, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, you're probably thinking, ah, good, I'm glad, <laughs> he needs to read that more, right? Uh, Untangling Emotions, or spiritual emotions, a psychology of Christian virtues. The, you get the picture. And these are just books that have the word emotion in it. I have a whole bunch of other books that don't use the word emotion but get at the same idea. Um, the reality, though, is this is not a new discovery. It's not like we're discovering new about something about our humanity that we never knew. Or um, Actually, the Bible always understood this. And actually, the early Christian tradition also understood this. It's actually us as modern people who have sort of reverted back to um, I think a very narrow understanding of what it means to be human. Um, understanding the positive and the negative role uh, of emotion in our life is really essential to our spiritual lives. So I've been a pastor for about 10 years, and if you were to ask me, how have you changed as a pastor in the past 10 years? Like in particular, how you see and view your ministry, 
And I would say it, it has to do essentially with this insight. Um, I call it my therapeutic turn, if you will. And, I, and in earnest, I, I, it probably happened about three or four years ago. And what I mean by that is that um, more and more I realize I pay more attention to my own emotional health as a leader, but I also try to pay more attention to your emotional health <laughs> as a congregation. And, and, and you know, we talk about emotional systems, you know, that, that's one of the categories that people use. And I, you know, to, this is important, I think, because you know, personally, I'm not wired in a way to, to, I'm not an emotive person necessarily. Maybe in the pulpit it feels that way, but you know, I, I'm a thinker, right? You guys know this. This sermon will demonstrate that, right? <laughs> it's very easy for me to live in my head, just to see all the problems in life as intellectual problems, right? And so like, if I can just read enough books, if I can just think long enough about it, I can figure out the problem. And that, that tends to be my instinct um, is just to think it through, to read it through, and, and to conquer it that way. And in part, that's because I feel very confident when, in the world of ideas. Um, I feel very confident, you know? Um, but you can't live in your head. Um, and what I've discovered over the past 10 years is that um, you can't think your way through life. You can't think your way out of suffering. You can't think your way into being a more loving person, <laughs> think your way into being a better husband or wife or father or mother, can't think your way into being a better pastor, I've tried, I've tried. Most importantly, you can't think your way into deeper trust and faith in God. You can't. It requires more. Now, what's the alternative? The alternative isn't simply to get more emotional to get in touch with your feelings, or to practice mindfulness techniques more. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's some good stuff in there. But what I'm getting at here is that a, a biblical approach to emotion or the emotional life, what it does is it's, it's a more holistic and a more integrative approach um, to our humanity that sees the interconnection of thinking and doing and feeling and how they're all held together. And for me, a category that I have applied and embraced as for self-evaluation is, is a helpful tool. And it's, it's, it's this word, I, um, it's called orthopathy. Orthopathy, right emotion or right passions. That's what orthopathy means. Now, you're familiar with the word orthodoxy, right? Orthodoxy means right belief. So you might even be familiar with the word orthopraxy, which is right action. Orthopathy is right emotion. It's right feeling. See, it's possible to believe all the right things. And it is possible even, at least from, from the outside view, to do all the right things. And yet, for something to be deeply off. Because what we lack is orthopathy. We lack right emotion. We lack what, what you might think of as integration. And whenever we go off the rails in orthopathy or orthodox or orthopraxy and doxy, usually it always starts in the heart, right? It, it always starts with wrong emotion, wrong passions. They get twisted, right? And so then what ends up happening is um, 
We're overcome. We struggle with anger. We struggle with anxiety or shame or envy or depression. And again, on the outside, we can be very orthodox and we believe all the right things and we're doing all the right things. But what ends up happening often in the consequences when we don't have right emotion, we, don't, we lack orthopathy, is that what ends up happening is our relationships break down, core relationships break down and blow up, right? <clears throat> now, the way that the Bible addresses this, this category of orthopathy, right emotion, is through the virtues. Uh, one of the greatest statements on the sort of emotionally healthy person, the orthopathic person, um, Paul has a couple statements on it, but the one from Colossians 3 is the one I often go to. He says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another as if and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is a picture of the orthopathic person. Um, it also corresponds perfectly to the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, the virtues, they get at emotion, right? They're fruits of the Spirit. They're graces of the Spirit deep within our hearts where God is reforming our emotional life, right? So to cultivate orthopathy, right emotion, is a work of the Spirit in us, and the virtues is the way to do this. And, and, and there's this interconnection, right, between right doing and right believing and right feeling, that is the biblical vision of sanctification of the person. Now, that's not my topic. I wanted to just give you the category. I want to consider, go way back to the beginning and ask this question, well, why did God create us this way? Why did God create us as emotional creatures or emotional animals? Why does God give us emotion? And also, how does sin impact our experience of ourselves, our emotions? And there's one big idea that I want to kind of communicate, and what is this, is that God gives emotions for connection. God gives us emotions for, for the sake of connecting. One, connecting with the goodness of his creation, but two, connecting an embodied relationship. Emotions play central roles in both of these. And so I want to look at the first one first. He said, God, God gives emotion to us as a way of responding to the goodness of creation. Um, see, when you encounter something that is truly good, like a good meal, or uh, maybe a, a beautiful performance uh, of, of a band or an orchestra, or a figure skater, or whatever it might be. When you encounter something that's truly good and beautiful, like it elicits in you a response and that's emotional, which is joy, wonder, awe, right? All these emotional responses. Um, emotion is, is, again, a response to the goodness of God's creation, right? God says, he created all things, he says it was very good. Creation is a place that was meant to be enjoyed in the presence of God. And it's interesting, when you read, when you read the first three chapters of the Bible, that, that, that theme of it was pleasing, or it looked good, or it was a delight, comes out. Um, this is from chapter two. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant 
to the sight and good for food, right? The garden is a place that's filled with good and beautiful things. It's a, it's a place of desire, of holy desire. Um, there's playful animals, right? All the animals come, all the animals come to Adam so he can name them, right? Um, there's, it's a place of nakedness without shame. There's this place with all kinds of delicious fruit, right? It, it's, a, it's a place of, 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 it's an emotionally charged place, right? And remember what, a, what the garden was. The garden represented the temple presence of God in the world. Creation was a temple and the garden was like the holy of holies. It was God's intimate presence. And the psalmist, Psalm 16, helps us understand this connection between God and desire. Um, Psalm 16, it says, In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your, in your presence, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I mean, that's such a strong statement, right? That, that's what life in the garden was like. God gives emotion for us to enjoy the goodness of his creation, but most importantly, he gives us emotion to enjoy him, right? <laughs> that emotion is given as a way of connecting with God, right? Because creation is a means by which we connect and worship God before the fall. It's part of worship. And I think, you know, it's, so it's important to just recognize that pleasure and enjoyment are not, contrary to popular opinion, not bad things, right? I mean, sometimes we have this conception of holy and spiritual people as they're people who are not really into enjoying life too much and not having too much pleasure, right? Which is, which is just completely false. <laughs> I mean, God creates the world good to be enjoyed. The holy person, the difference between the holy person and, and maybe the way the world in, engages in pleasure is that the holy and spiritual person knows how to enjoy things in the right way for what they are as God created them. So um, this brings us, though, to, to the first way that sin really impacts our emotional life. Um, one of the ways that the Christian tradition talks about sin is as disordered desire. Sin is disordered desire. What does that mean? Uh, to have a disordered desire is to have a desire that is, in a sense, out of whack. It is misdirected. Um, it doesn't know how to properly enjoy things according to what is true, right? And look at, you know, this is a central part of our passage this morning. Look at the temptation scene when, when, um, when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So God says, eat of any tree except this one. <laughs> eat of any tree. God sets a boundary on desire. He says there's this one tree that you cannot eat of, right? And um, so you see what happens in the moment of disobedience. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, right, she's responding to the good of the tree for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. Now, do you see where sin, I mean, sin is not a reason problem, right? It's not a failure of reason. <laughs> It's like, oh, they didn't know, they were ignorant, or they didn't think it through, right? No, it's a desire problem, right? They desired something they shouldn't have wanted, right? They, they let their desire get out of control. And that's where the sin is located, right? Which makes it so hard, right? Sin is disordered desire. Right, you think about, we've been talking a lot about sin in the light of the garden. 
to take and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What it meant is that we took for ourselves the right to define what is good and evil according to our own hearts, right? So we define reality according to our own hearts. And what this does to us is, I mean, one way to think about being a sinner is, is that you become a bad lover. If you want to, you know, that's what sinners are. We're bad lovers. See, um, you know, when Jesus talks about, you know, being impure, like, where's the source of sin? It comes from the heart. It comes from disordered, disordered desire. We don't love God according to what is true. We don't love our neighbors according to what is true. We don't love ourselves according to what is true, right? And it, it doesn't mean we stop loving. We're always loving. We just love things the wrong way. Our desires inside get disordered and distorted and twist up, twisted and mixed up. Um, a very um, <laughs> vivid illustration of this um, comes from the life of Woody Allen, the, the famous director. In the 1970s, he was married to Mia Farrow, and Mia Farrow had an adopted daughter named Sun Yi. And Woody Allen left Mia Farrow to marry his basically adopted stepdaughter, right? And what he said became a very famous statement in response. He says, the heart wants what the heart wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. The heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, and this is, <laughs> this is like the first religious truth of our culture. The heart wants what the heart wants, right? The heart defines what is real. But again, this is, this is not true love. This is bad love, right? This is disordered love. Uh, so many abuses and great evils in the world are justified in this way. The heart wants what the heart wants, right? But this, again, is not loving according to what is true. Um, again, this is a really extreme example but in, all, in, in, in many different ways, we're the same way. The heart wants what the heart wants. We define reality according to what we want. That's the thing that is most true. And yet, our hearts are disordered, right? Now, there's so many ways I could apply this, but I, I do want to say this. is like, to pay attention to your emotions, um, it's not just that, that because you feel something doesn't mean it's always true. I mean, emotion is a way that we kind of perceive the world. But just because you feel an emotion or you, you, and it tells you something about a person or a situation doesn't mean it's always true. Sometimes it can be completely wrong. Sometimes it is true. But again, if your heart is disordered and if it's mixed up, as Jesus says, and deceptive, then you always have to examine it in the light of what is true, which is God's word and what is a reality, right? And so this leads us then to like this question of, well, how does God then... What is sanctification? I mean, sanctification, or making holy, is nothing less than God reforming all the desires of our heart, reordering them, teaching us to live and love according to the truth, to love other people according to the truth, to love ourselves according to what is true. And, and practically speaking, at the most practical level, what it involves is, again, it's the cultivation of these virtues, right? Humility, gentleness, compassion, forgiveness, goodness, faithfulness, hope, joy, all of these things, when we, when we learn to what they are and how they impact us, they're graces of the Holy Spirit, and they reformat, reorder the very desires of your heart. Okay, there's a whole sermon series in there. 
Um, but I'm gonna move on to the second point. So emotion is, is a way that God gives us to connecting with the goodness of creation, but also of learning to resist what is evil in the world. You need emotion to learn how to resist what is evil. Um, but second, um, emotion, God gives us emotion for the sake of connection, embodied connection and relationships. Um, and here, I mean, there's just, you know, there's a lot here. I'm trying not to run over today. Um, so emotion happens in the body. Emotion happens in the body. It doesn't happen in your head. I mean, you might register an emotion in your mind. I feel angry or I feel sad. But you experience it not in your mind. You experience it in your body, right? Um, you, you experience emotion in your body. So like such that when you experience depression or anger or anxiety, like it actually can make you feel sick, right? Just like when you experience joy um, or, or, or kind of delight, it actually it gives you kind of energy in your body, right? Emotion, and that's why emotion is so important to pay attention to in our lives because when we don't attend to our emotions, like we basically ignore our bodies. We ignore our bodies, and you have to attend to your body, right? And so there's always this interconnection between emotion and the body. But what's so important here is that emotion is really central to the way we connect with one another in relationship. And you see this in the very first human relationship, right? The relationship between the man and the woman. Um, and, the, and the Lord God, um, and in the creation of the, of the woman from the side of the man, and the, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and then the man said, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. Now, I want, I want you to note like the expression, the little poem. Um, in that expression of Adam, there's a sense, at the same time, of, of relief, astonishment, joy, and delight, <laughs> right? Ah, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? There, there's a kind of emotional dimension that is part of what draws them together and allows them to bond with one another. Now, emotion is not the only thing that bonds you know, people together, but it's really important, right? Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If you were to, to go and you think about all of your closest relationships in life, your deepest friendships, the people who know you best and you feel most connected with, one thing that will be universally true of all those relationships is that there is a common emotional bond or experience. You've experienced something, um, a shared emotional experience. Um, and it isn't always saying how much you love each other or how much you appreciate each other, but you've been through something with that person where you've had an emotional experience, <laughs> whether through suffering or through joy. Um, and, that, and that connects you, right? There is only, um, when all, when, there's only shared um, emotional experience with one another when we're able to be vulnerable, right? <clears throat> Vulnerability is another way to talk about shared emotion. Um, and this is, this is reason why it's actually so hard, right? Is because when you share yourself emotionally with another person, um, you know, you share your true self, right? You take off the mask, you let the person see you for who you are, you actually disclose, oh, like, this is how I'm feeling or this is how I'm not feeling. And that can be a scary thing because when we take our masks off and we let people see us for who we are, um, it's possible that they might not like what they see, right? They might push us away, they might reject us. And so, so we always wanna keep the mask up, right? And we don't wanna be vulnerable. 
And yet, what you see in the picture of the, the man and the woman is this, this really powerful picture of the relationship between vulnerability and intimacy. Right? So, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. See, there's, there's no intimacy without vulnerability. There's no trust without vulnerability. Um, this is what it means to connect with another person uh, relationally, and it, and it requires us to, to share ourselves, right? And this is a hard thing. Uh, Brene Brown, many of you will know her. She, um, she works in this area of vulnerability and, and shame, and she talks about vulnerability as uh, the power of vulnerability for connection, for loving connection. And, and, and it's, she's, this is utterly biblical, absolutely and utterly biblical. She says, connection flows from authenticity, um, and when you are able to be yourself before others and be seen, and this vulnerability is the birthplace of love and joy and creativity. Again, she's talking about nakedness in biblical terms, right? And it, it's this nakedness creates trust and connection with others um, and bonding and draws us together. And, and the opposite is true, though, is that when we are unwilling or unable to be vulnerable with another person, with other people, um, what we do is we forego deep connection. We forego intimacy and relationships, right? And this brings us to the, the way that sin, um, sin impacts this aspect of our emotional lives, which is shame. Shame. Shame is a primal, original emotion happens in our bodies that is a result of the fall. It is universal. It's universal. Um, shame impacts all of us. And, and shame pulls us in the opposite direction of vulnerability, right? If, if vulnerability leads us to, to connection and, and bonding, shame leads us to disconnection. And again, uh, Brene Bound is, is really insightful. There's a quote at the beginning of your worship folder on this point. Um, she says that shame is a fear of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection. I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough for love, for belonging, for connection. And so shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And this is precisely what, how things play out in the garden, right? So Adam and Eve, right, after they sin, the immediate reaction and new knowledge they have is a knowledge of themselves as naked. And it's a crippling knowledge. And they immediately, their, their instinct is to, to hide and to clothe themselves, right? And so they hear God coming, and they're just heading to the, to the bushes because they don't want to be in the presence of God because their shame is exposed. And so they hide themselves. You know, and they, we do the same thing, right? I mean, um, we avoid vulnerability because of shame, because we're afraid of being seen for who we are. And um, the reality is, is that nothing destroys relationships and communities like shame. I mean, it just runs and ravages communities. And you know, we have all these mechanisms uh, for covering shame, right? We, we, cl we clothe ourselves, we try to create garments of success and accomplishment and beauty to kind of cover up this inside that, that's, that's insecure or we blame shift, or, or we just hide out, like we retreat. I mean, just think about this in your own life. Like when you're, and the thing is that shame is never like an emotion that we often register above, above the heart, right? 
You almost never like, oh, I'm feeling shame right now. No, because we usually shame, we, we experience shame in, in terms of anger or, or anxiety or a whole host of different emotions. And then we try to react in order to contain it. And so we hide ourselves or we refuse to be vulnerable by we are defensive or we just cut people off, cut relationships off. So the question then is, how do you deal with shame? <laughs> how do you deal with shame in your life? Now again, according to Brene Brown, the way you overcome shame is by learning to see that you are worthy of love and belonging. That's how, according to Brown, is you, you deal with shame by learning to see that you're worthy for love and belonging. And you know, this, there's some truth to this. Um, but this is really the answer that our culture has, our therapeutic culture. Um, but this is not enough. This is not enough. Um, we don't struggle with shame in our lives because, um, simply because our culture imposes shame upon us, or we haven't come to see that we're you know, worthy to be loved. Um, shame's not just a social problem or a therapeutic problem. Shame is a God problem. That's so important to see. Shame is a God problem. The reason that that we struggle with shame is because we're sinners and we're separated from the God who is a source of life. The reason we struggle with shame is because we have been separated from the one who created us and who loves us. And shame will continue in our lives until that, that is, is dressed. And I mean, you can do all the, the self-talk you want, right? You know, I am I'm worthy, I am loved, I belong. You can even have other people, you can even have the world say, you know, you're amazing, you're incredible, you are loved. But the reality is this, is there's like that voice that you hear sometimes that just keeps whispering, you're not enough. You're not enough. And you can pile on accomplishment, and you can pile on success and recognition, and that voice is still there, whispering, you're not enough. Because again, the problem with shame is not just you know, a personal or a social problem, it is a God problem, and only God can take it away. See, you know, all that Brown can offer is kind of like a really sophisticated version of the fig leaves in the garden of covering ourselves up. Only God can take away the shame because the shame is really points us to the disconnection that we have with him as our, as our God. God has to cover us. And this is precisely what God does. Um, later in the story, it says that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, they tried to make garments out of fig leaves, which wasn't adequate. But what God did is he, he actually had to slaughter an animal and make skins for them. And what's so beautiful about this story is that even as Adam and Eve are like fleeing from God's presence, what is God doing? God is going after them. <laughs> He's looking for him. He's looking for him. He's searching for, where are you at? Why are you leaving? Why are you running away? And it's the same for us today. And this is grace, friends. I mean, are you running from God? <laughs> He's searching for you. He's looking for you. Where are you? He wants connection. The Apostle Paul talks about the Christian life as clothing ourselves with the person of Christ. He talks about putting on Christ. And when the Lord uh, made garments of skin from the animals for Adam and Eve, this, in a sense, was a foreshadowing of what God would do for us in, in, in a kind of 
you know, ultimate sense with the person of Jesus Christ, right? God slaughters an animal to cover them. And Jesus, when he goes to the cross, what happens to him is he dies. He dies naked, exposed. And what happens is he takes, in a sense, all the shame, right? All the shame is like piled up on him, piled up on him. And he takes it and he absorbs it. And he gives us something back that is different, which is not shame, but garments of glory and light. See, we, we, come, you, we come to know ourselves as worthy and as loved only in Jesus Christ because he was the perfect son. He was the righteous one. He's the one whom the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And in him, that's when we can know that we are worthy and we are loved because we are covered with him. He takes our shame, he takes our nakedness, degrading nakedness, and he converts it and renews us and gives us garments of light and glory and love. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you provide for us a garment um, to cover our nakedness, to be able to stand before one another and before you without shame. Teach us what it means to, to be in Jesus. Teach us what it means to um, put on Christ, to deal with all the disordered and mixed up loves in our hearts um, and to surrender them to you and help us to know that you are at work um, and that you do love us. You love us deeply and that we do belong as your children. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ. Amen.